This is Kate Up with Max K. Three, two, one, and we're rolling. Today we have a very, very special guest. It's a good family friend of mine and probably one of New Zealand's greatest broadcasters of all time, the GOAT of New Zealand media, Paul Henry. How are you, Max? <laughs> I'm good. Thank you so much for coming up. Good to see you. I got two varies. Two, yeah. Yeah. Two varies. Do you remember when, was it Condoleezza Rice that, that said to Winston Peters, you know, our country's a very, very, very good Ooh, friend. Three. I know. Winston <laughs> got three. Yeah, well. But he always had that sly look in his eye. He does. He does. Now, I just wanted to start this by saying I've always looked up to you, Paul, because you've always been someone that's so just unequivocally themselves. You know, you've always, I feel like in every aspect of your life, you've always just done you. And um, having read your books and, you know, studied your media, uh, that's something I've really just seen throughout your whole life. I just think it's something really cool and something I've always looked up to. Oh, thanks, Max. I mean, one of the reasons is that that's easier yeah, you know, it's. Um, I mean, it's easier just in life. I mean, you know yourself if you tell a lie, and everybody lies. I mean, it, you couldn't function if you didn't lie no. um, at times. But it's just so hard to keep track of things, and and so when you're in the media, um, particularly when you're doing a lot, like you know, when I was doing breakfast television and then working in the afternoon, you know, if you're actually putting on an act. Or if you're claiming to have views that you don't really have, you know, where is the line? You're got, presumably you're constantly checking yourself. Yep. It's just so much easier to say what you actually think and be who you actually are. And do you think you were always like that? Or do you think that's something that like media taught you? That's a good question. Um, I think to a large degree, I was always like it. Yep. And obviously, I mean, things are, I mean, you always change. People say, oh, well, you can't be exactly the same when you're on television or on the radio. Or, and, and no one's exactly the same. I mean, in, in a work scenario, if the owner of the company walks into a conversation, people's conversation changes, changes yeah. you know, and, and, and their whole style, the way they stand changes but they're just subtle they're still themselves it's just that's how they would be yeah yeah and and that's how i would be when i was on television or radio or something that i'd just be that slightly different vision of still very much myself of yourself yeah so i wanted to start the podcast just by you know obviously you've had a very successful career and you know these days you live a more luxurious life than you used to but i wanted to just dig into what it was like growing up because i heard you lived in state house in bristol and, you know, things weren't always as easy as they are now. So We used wh- to dream of living in a state house. Yeah. We lived in a tenement block. Oh, wow. So the people in the tenement block, the rich people <laughs> around where I lived were the people that lived in state houses. Yeah. You know, or th- they would be, the Americans would maybe, would they call them duplexes or, you know, they would be terraced houses, but they were still actual houses with their own front door. Yeah. Whereas I was in... Um, uh, Frankham House in Redcliffe, oh, next wow. to the Cut, which was this filthy river that had been made by prisoners, and we had this little rusty playground, and it was dire. <laughs> yeah. And I, I couldn't remember um, just how dire until many, many years later. I was in England with a film crew, and I can't even remember what I was filming now. But we were going quite close to Bristol, and, and I you thought, went back, didn't oh, you? go back, yeah. yeah. And when I saw it as an adult, I thought, my God, I wouldn't keep a dog here. <laughs> and I can remember it was, a, you know, it was a palace to me then, you know. Yeah. And I used to think, oh, our place is better than anybody else's. You know? yeah, but yeah, it yeah. was shit. <laughs> it was just horrible. And this playground with like a rusty broken slide and two rusty swings. But that was, you that know, was that it, was yeah. a holiday going over to the playground. Yeah. So what? Did, how did you find it growing up? Like did... 
you, you know, you just said it felt like a palace, but did you know you were really poor? Yes. And the reason I knew it more than anyone else that was around me is I, I had been born because I was born in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, and my father was an engineer and an adventurer. He was one of the people then who was building the country. Yeah. You know how now we have uh, a country full of people who sit around and, and want a handout. <laughs> yeah. Well, in those days... Uh, we had a country full of people who were building roads and businesses and they were building the infrastructure, you know, they were building their own futures because they knew no one else would do it for them. Um, and so he was one of those people. And so I'd been brought up in this area and then when, when my parents separated, I went back, uh, Not for me it wasn't back to England, but for my mother uh, it was back to England. And so I went from having what would have been a very almost upper-middle-class lifestyle here, living next to the beach in a beautiful house um, in a family with two cars and, you know, an adventure and, you know, everything we could possibly eat, to going to a tenement block in Bristol. Wow. So that was – it both had an upside and a downside. The downside was I knew what I was missing. Was missing, yeah. You know, the upside was I knew what I was missing. So I knew what that there was a to- totally different way. You know, I was surrounded by – you know, the kids in my class, um, their their absolute dream, their wish was to be on the Imperial Tobacco Pension Plan before they left school because then life was sweet. Mm. They didn't have to actually worry about anything. They'd go from school literally through the nicotine-stained gates of Will's Tobacco yeah. and, and they could see their whole life. And if they really did well, they could maybe get a small caravan and maybe go to Spain every few years for a package holiday. But they were happy with that, whereas I knew that there was no way I was going to sign up to a pension plan when I left school. I had adventuring to do and, you know, I had to be famous and rich and infamous and all those things. Yeah, because one thing I I read a lot in your book or kind of a theme I saw was that kind of notion of manifestation. And it always felt like you, you know, thought you were better or not in an arrogant way, but you just had that self-belief. Where do you think that came from and what do you think kind of drove you to be like that? Um, it wasn't that I thought I was better. I knew I was better. Yeah. You know, because that's the whole thing with manifestation. Yeah, and yeah. I would never have used that word before, of course, obviously, yeah. um, you know, when, when, when it was happening. Uh, it still sort of happens. But I absolutely convinced myself. I knew beyond any doubt at all that in that class, in that school, I was destined for greatness yeah. and everybody else was chaff, yeah. you know. And what, what made you think that? I suppose partly it was that I had seen, you know, I mean, I travelled around the world. Yeah. Nobody, I don't, I can't say nobody else in the school, possibly, but possibly, certainly yeah. no one else in the class yeah. had at that point ever been overseas if it wasn't Spain. Yeah. Um, and even then, probably very few had been to Spain. Uh, whereas I'd seen and I'd heard my father's stories. And so not only did I know life could be different, but I, that I knew it was going to be me. Yeah. I was going to get out of there as soon as I possibly could. I mean, I started multiple businesses when I was at school. Yeah, because it sounded like you did everything. <laughs> yeah, I just I, – I can remember once because, you know, we used to um, take photographs just, you know, with cameras like Kodak cameras on film and it was so expensive. It was cheap com- then, but still for us it was hugely expensive. So you'd get a film and you'd put it in a, you know, six-pound camera um, which was expensive then for us. Yeah. Uh, and you'd just take photos and then you'd – anyway – um, I found this one pharmacy in the high street um, next to actually one of the Will's Tobacco factories. So it was all covered in nicotine. Uh, and I went in and they did this special deal. And I said to this woman, 
I was only like I was about 12 or 13. And I said to the, to the woman, I said, if I bring you at least 10 films a week, will you do me a special deal? And she couldn't believe that anyone in that area would have 10 films a week. But, of course, they weren't mine. I then opened up this little business at school. <laughs> and so I undercut everybody. I gave half of my margin to everyone if they gave me their films. Yeah. Never made any money out of it. <laughs> and I don't know why, because on paper... It sounded brilliant. It sounded yeah. brilliant. But I think it's because by the time... Some people don't pay and all, all my margins were fine. But I had a lot of businesses like that. Yeah. I mean, a lot. There was a, there was a pet shop in, in, in uh, Bristol where I lived. Um, people would want pets and mostly it was goldfish because they oh. were, you know... Easy to keep. Easy to keep, cheap. Yeah. And I, I had so I had some goldfish, and I used to go to this pet shop and look at the tropical tanks and everything, and think how wonderful is that. And I saw this tank with all of this stuff, and it was called Daphne, and it's it's like a living bug, right? And you buy bags of Daphne yeah. from, and you pour them in, and your fish catch them and eat them, oh, right? right? Yeah. So it's really good quality living food. Well, I was down the docks, and. <laughs> I saw this bloody Daphne in the water. Oh, no. I know, you can see where this is yeah, going. No, exactly. So I climbed down the Anyway, in the end, I had the bath at home was full of this Daphne, bloody Daphne, oh, and I was bagging it up <laughs> and taking it to the pet shop anyway. It was a disaster yeah. because obviously it, it was it killed a lot of fish. Yeah, around the... it was poisonous. The... Oh, no. <laughs> and I don't think the Daphne was poisonous, but the water in the bag yeah. was probably not ideal. No, shit. So you're the, the fish killer of Bristol. The fish killer of Bristol. Yeah. yeah. Um, what are your thoughts on things like fate? Like, do you believe everything happens for a reason or do you think you make your own destiny? I think you make your own destiny. Okay. And there's that saying, um, which I used to quote all the time then, and I used to think it was true. It's not unanimously true. Uh, you are where you are because that's where you want to be. Yeah. And I think, though it's not unanimously true, because there are people, there are some people whose cards have been dealt so badly so bad, yeah. that they really do not have the choices. Mm-hmm. But that's at the very fringe, those people. Yeah. Um, I think for the vast majority, you are where you are because that's where you want to be. A lot of yeah. people will argue with that and say, well, if I had more money, I'd be, well, get more money. Get more money. You yeah. know, we'll work a bit harder or work a bit smarter or get out of your comfort zone or say yes a little bit more, more yeah. often. You know, don't take the line of least resistance. And this is easy to say. And like most people, I take the line of least resistance, just not as much not as, as most much, people. Yeah. yeah. And do you think growing up, you know, with that struggle and that poverty, do you think that kind of made your threshold to deal with bullshit, I guess? Yeah. Higher? Or? Yeah. 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 And to deal with adversity, yeah. you know, because even when things went wrong with my, and I never really planned very much. I just had this vision that vision, things were yeah. going to be amazing. Um, and I just worked towards it as best I could. And it was pretty limited. You know, my options were very limited to start with, but my vision was wide. My yep. options were narrow, but my vision was wide. Mm-hmm. For most people, their options are much wider than they think, but their vision is narrow. But, yeah. you know? um, and so I just sort of boxed on and tried not to take the line of least resistance. You know, in my entire – I mean, I've been sacked a fair few times because <laughs> I would take jobs that I couldn't do. Yeah, but test yourself. Um, I started – I went into – I worked in a mailroom, like, to, to get into the BBC. Yeah. To start with, I was rolling cables out, but I thought I need to get a proper paid, you know, rather than just doing, you know, work where I got a couple of pounds in a week to roll cables out. I thought if I do that, but I'll get a job, clerical job, to get actually onto the pay scale mm-hmm. at the BBC. And I was 
profoundly dyslexic. When did you find that out? Uh, funnily enough, when I went to England. So in oh. New Zealand, I, I, was, I, I was in school here for the first five years of my schooling, and they just thought I was slow. Yeah. Um, and then I went to England, and within a couple of weeks there, they'd sent me to a specialist and determined I was dyslexic wow. and taught me slightly differently. That's actually um, good. So I leave school. I was still, you know, I could barely read, yeah. barely read. And this job came up in the mailroom. Now, the problem with that you to read it. is the, yeah. <laughs> the entire thing was alphabeticalized. <laughs> oh, no. And so I had walls and walls of boxes with letters yeah. and numbers and then piles and bags full of mail with addresses. And you had to put it in the boxes. And then you had to go on these complex walks oh, no. to deliver the mail <clears throat> to the – it's very old-fashioned. You won't know yeah. any of these things. No. People used to actually deliver mail. It was, it's 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 – you know, biros, yeah. you know, it's writing on paper and no they way. fold it up and put it into like a paper satchel oh, wow. called an envelope. I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was diabolical and I was sacked from the job because I thought <laughs> I was lazy, but I wasn't. I was you in there all time it. of the night just trying to keep up with yeah. things. Um, but the point I was going to make is uh, multiple times I've been let go yeah. from employers. There has not been one time when I haven't benefited from that, wow. where I haven't immediately found myself in a much better position. You know, the, the line of least resistance is to stay where you are and do what you know and do what you feel comfortable with. Yeah. Um, when you're forced out of that, if your attitude is right, then it will always be positive. Well, so how do you deal with failure? Well, I don't know if failure is the right word, but adversity. Like, say, say something like that happens, because obviously, you know, say I walked into work tomorrow and I got fired. You know, not everyone's going to sit there and go, oh, I'm going to get a mean job tomorrow. You know, like. No, no. So how. But I mean, some people would look at that and you can understand why they would and see that as failure. Failure, I yeah. failed. I've been fired. Other people would look at that and say, of all the people in this building, it was me they chose to fire. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And even although on, uh, superficially people might think, well, that's a ludicrous thing to say. But think about it for a moment. They actually, they actually hunted you out. Of all those people, you're the one that stood out for firing. So there must have been something a bit special about you. For them to notice. Yeah. yeah. So they noticed you, so you didn't quite fit in. I mean, look at where you were working. Was it the kind of place you really wanted to fit in? Yeah. You know, there have been times when, um, you know, I've, I've lost a job, and years and years later, people that didn't lose their job have said to me, oh, God, I always felt bad about that, you know, when that happened to you. Mm -hmm. And I turn around and think, you know, you're still in the same building, yeah, doing, doing the same, the same job. I've done 25 different things in five yeah. different countries since then. So actually, who lost out, yeah. you know? So it, it very much, you know, failure very much is in the eyes of, of, of the individual. Yeah. You know, if you perceive that you've failed, then you've doubly failed. Mm. One, you genuinely have failed because that's what you think. And two, it's affected you badly because you're thinking about it, yeah. you know? Well, my sensei at jiu-jitsu, he always says that failure is only when you stop or stop trying, mm. which I thought was quite a cool way of looking at yep, it. Yeah, yeah. And there's the sales thing whereby, um, you know, that whole thing, you know, 80% of the sales are made by 20% of the Other people. Of the people, yeah. Uh, and the difference is they're probably marginally better at selling. Mm -hmm. but they're much better at trying they to sell. They try harder. They yeah. try harder. Yeah. They try more people. You know, if uh, it was interesting. I was talking to someone many, many years ago about exactly that, and it was selling encyclopedias. They're like books full of paper with writing on them, oh, and they oh. come in sets. What, actual books? Actual books. Like not Kindles? No, no, oh. no, no, oh, no. Wow. Actual, like, books. Kindles yeah. based loosely on them. On them, Anyway, yeah. um, 
they, 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 we used to, because I was involved selling encyclopedias for a while. Of course you were. And if people bought a whole set, they got a free bookcase oh. made of wood, which wow. is like based on encyclopedias. Yeah. Anyway, um, uh, I can't even think where I was going with that. What were we saying at the beginning of that? Uh, we're talking about sales, 20%, 80%. Oh, so the interesting thing there was um, the, the guy that ran this agency for these encyclopedias, he calculated why well, he tried to work out what was it the the great people were doing yeah. and he worked out that the actual the difference between the great people and and the ones that weren't great is they just sat in front of more people to sell yeah, encyclopedias the actual success rate was identical mm. or virtually yeah. identical within a few percent just a numbers game. between everyone it's just a numbers game yeah. you know and the difference is the people that did really well got more numbers because they didn't take rejection yeah. as a failure they just thought, thank God, that person said no, because I know seven in ten people will say no. Say no so I'm yeah. that much closer to someone saying yes, saying yes, which sounds so superficial, but that was what it was about. Who taught you that attitude? Because, well, how do you think you... Well, you, you play go- a lot of golf. That's golf. Yeah, literally. That is exactly golf, isn't it? But I think what's what I find interesting is I feel like I've always lived my life kind of like an optimist. Like what you've said, I, I've always felt... You know, like I quit a job a few years ago and literally as I was walking to the elevator, I got a call from a job that I'd wanted in America and they said, um, like, are you like job vacant right now? A position just come up. And it was like literally seven minutes after I quit. So I, I've always had that opinion in life that, you know, good things will happen. You just yep. have to trust the process. Yep. But I know so many people that are just so negative about everything. Mm. And so do you see my parents are like very optimistic, you know, like they're always trying to find the good side of things and so I've always just kind of wondered is that something that I was just kind of like taught or is that you know like because coming it's from it's probably a vibe you yeah. probably t- I mean because you know and this is this comes down to the cards you're dealt as well I mean if you are surrounded in a fam- uh, in a family by what we would perceive as failure more importantly by what the people in that family perceive as failure mm. then that's your expectation you know, I mean, people talk about uh, optimists, pessimists, and realists. There aren't three different kinds of people. There no. are only two, because if you're a pessimist, that is reality. That's reality. If yeah. you're an optimist, that is reality. Totally. But that's what's just so inspiring about you is you know coming from where you've come from, you know, to be able to turn that round and do what yeah. you've done. I think it's. I mean, pretty it was cool. slightly easier for me, like I say, because I'd seen seen the other something side. else. Totally. But, you know, people get I, – I, I always remember reading years and years ago about the, um, the big challenge to communism in Russia. And they reckon that the pivotal point was fridges because mm-hmm. all of a sudden people over there got television and they mm-hmm. saw foreign adverts for fridges and they <laughs> yeah. thought, shit, you can actually keep food longer. Yeah. If we could get a fridge, our life would be totally different. Wow. And and they see that as one of those pivotal pivotal things in Russia for for ordinary Russians. All of a sudden, they thought, "My God, we knew people had more money than us, maybe, or, or went on holidays." But what does that mean? But shit, they've got these bloody boxes where you can keep food cold. Yeah. Well, I guess it, I remember seeing that article. There was that guy that had lived in the jungle for something like thirty years, and they took him out of the jungle, and he died within three weeks or something of coming back to civilization. Because he just couldn't handle it. Couldn't it was, handle all of that. Yeah. yeah. The and pressures every, and yeah. the wonderment. Yeah. And so that, I guess, yeah, it's definitely exemplary of the fact, you know, you only know what your circumstances are. Mm. So I guess if you're saying, you know, you've seen the other side, 
I can understand how that, you know, creates that drive. Yeah, and it's that whole, you know, I, I dreamt big, but for me they weren't dreams. You know, this was my future reality. Yeah. But my version of big could be much bigger than most people's version of big. Totally. Because I'd seen, You'd seen much it. bigger, yeah. So after doing the BBC stuff, you obviously came back to New Zealand. Um, and what I found super interesting was your career through, you know, the war correspondence and um, – Talk us through a bit of that. I mean, I heard you got kidnapped in Iraq. What was that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, again, I just thought there isn't anything I can't do. Yeah. Um, this was just before the internet that I was doing. It was a lot harder because it was just more shit to carry. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, satellite phones were huge. Huge, yeah. They were the size of big briefcases. Briefcases are um, boxes with handles ah. that you can put paper. Remember we talked about paper, paper before? Yeah, yeah. You could put that in them. Oh, interesting. Anyway, um, a satellite phone was like that, you know, yeah. and that's, so I carried it around the world and I would um, – by now, I had like a modest mansion in the countryside outside Masterton, where my children and my wife were, and um, and and I would just watch. I had CNN, and I'd yeah. watch CNN, and I followed international news so closely because obviously lo- logistically I was a long way away. Long way away yeah. So I had to work out when a conflict was going to be worth the effort to go to, to it. Go to, yeah. And I'd literally just arrive in war zones on my own. And um, with my suitcases and my little DAT recorder and camera and um, try and make money out of telling the stories. Were you not scared of dying? No. I mean, to start with, I was. But there's this – there's excitement. Yeah. And excitement extinguishes fear quite Mm -hmm. often. Sometimes it, 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 sometimes it's very hard to, to distinguish between excitement and stupidity. Yeah. Um, and and very, very hard to distinguish between bravery and stupidity. Yeah. Uh, and people will say, why did you do that? You know, it was exciting, you know. <laughs> you must have been fearless, or maybe you were just stupid. Stupid, yeah. Yeah. But, but so, I mean, some situ- sometimes I would be in a situation where it was all of a sudden very obvious that you hadn't calculated the risk going in. And what will go through your mind in situations like that? Shit. Yeah. You know, how do I get out of here? How do I? Let's start calculating now. Let's start at being a little bit more intelligent and working out how I can get out of here. I mean, one story I always tell, which was a, a story that a Time journalist, a, a line that a Time journalist had, um, uh, you know, you, the, the story's at the end of a long, windy road. And the fact that you might go down that road, you could write a story about that and say, I'm, I'm thinking of going down this road. You could write the whole story. And just file it, just mm-hmm. by sitting in an office, which a lot of people do, sitting in a newsroom. A lot of people do that. Or you could go to the beginning of the road, write a story about being at the beginning of the road. Or you could go halfway down the road. And the story gets better and better the and further. better the further down you go. But with every corner you go down, the story gets better and the chance of being able to tell it is reduced. Yeah. Well, I remember- so it's that calculation of I know if I go around one more corner – the story could be substantially better, but the risk is substantially higher. Well, I remember you talking about um, when you're in the Congo and you were saying there was some person that had been killed and you went over to find them. Mm. And you were saying, I remember you said something like, if I go, the chances that I ever actually get to tell the story greatly diminish, but then you still went. I still went. You still yeah. went. I thought, and I had high ideas. And, and I didn't realise this was the the, the guerrilla group were inter Humway and they operated in the um, impenetrable forest. Yeah, what is that? Which is around. So I'll tell you what it is, because I thought, 
impenetrable? Yeah, it sounds pretty. How, how can a forest be impenetrable? It's just bloody trees. Turns out it's mostly not trees. It's uh, mostly bamboo. Bamboo, yeah. And if you know how cl- – and people don't think of bamboo associated with Africa, but there's a lot of – and it's serious bamboo. Yeah. Um, and it grows, like, right next to it, like – it's just it's impenetrable (laughs) and so you'll be walking through the forest and then you'll come up to this wall of bamboo and maybe it's maybe it's 10 10 bamboo well 10 you couldn't get through with a machete but you could get through a couple but you start going through it and you think it's never going to end well it obviously will at some point but you'll be dead before you get there yeah so 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 this guy had been kidnapped probably killed um, by a group that wanted international publicity called Interahamwe, who operated between Rwanda, uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and a little bit in Uganda. But there was this one place. It's where the gorillas are in the mist, uh-huh. you know. Um, and so I spent weeks and weeks and weeks in this little village, uh, Kosoro, which was on this border. And I enlisted a few people to help me. And I just thought, you know, I'd sit there trying to make satellite connections with my little briefcase yeah. on my lap when the time was right, and you'd hear noises, and there'd be there'd be these gorillas. By gorillas, I mean, you know, rebels. The people, yeah. Yeah, they'd be marching up with machetes, and they'd just stop and look at me. And I'm there with a, and it, no part of me thought these people will hack me to bits until I was actually almost hacked to bits and, and a couple of people that I had working with me were killed and oh, wow. so in the end I actually this is you know when you know you're in trouble uh, I always had my phone on for safety reasons at a particular time I can't remember when it was early evening and the phone rings and um, it's the uh, British attache in Kampala mm-hmm. who said to me we know you are being hunted down we will not come in and get you out. You must leave immediately. I mean, leaving immediately is a week to get to get out. out yeah. But you must leave immediately. And I can remember hanging up and thinking, God, I must be close to a good story. Now. Oh, no. You know, <laughs> yeah. when you get a call from the British yeah, attache you know, in Kampala, you know, yeah. Wow. And, so, and is that when you went and met with the guerrilla group? Yeah. yeah. What was that like? Um, it was foolish. And by then I was re- – this was after that call – and I can remember it, I was coming up to a clearing. You know, it's very hard to remember specific things because yeah. there were so many incidents like this around the world in, mm. in, in Asia and Africa And because I would always go to try and get, you know, a, a more interesting story uh, or, or, and hopefully have some resolution as well. Anyway, on this occasion, this guerrilla group, they were going to meet me. I mean, what did they want? They wanted publicity. Maybe I would have been a better hostage, mm-hmm. you know. Um but you always have high hopes and you think, how is it possible for me not? I talked to myself from, from living in a tenement block in Bristol. I talked, to my, I talked myself into being a foreign correspondent in Uganda. How is it not possible I can talk, into, to talk some rebels into freeing a into hostage? Freeing hostage. You know, and you go there thinking that. And I can remember my guy, my sort of tracker, was walking with me. And as we approached this clearing... He said to me in broken English, don't worry, I have a gun. And I stopped. And you're being watched all the time because in the jungle, they watch you long before you arrive. They sort of semi-track you. Kind of like Avatar. Kind of like Avatar. Yeah. yeah. Only not blue. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of like Avatar. (laughs) Anyway, I stopped 
And I said, you never bring a gun yeah. to what might be a huge gunfight. I said, you know, you always go into what might be a huge gunfight unarmed, you know, because you can't shoot all these people with your gun. With my gun. There yeah. are so many guns <laughs> that we're going to be facing. If they find you've got a gun, yeah, that's not a good. No. Nah. So he sort of slipped the gun down his trouser pocket onto the floor. <laughs> oh, no. And, um, yeah, and, and we weren't successful, probably because Douglas Keir, who was the New Zealander who had been, along with others, captured, um, had been killed weeks before, probably. Yeah, probably, yeah. Mm. What was, um, where do you think the scariest place you've gone? Um, you know, I, I, one of the scariest things, I mean, there were times in Africa, I remember one particular time when the, the, the rebels were just destroying little villages around this particular area I was in. And you had to walk down these little paths in the jungle. It was in a place where there were no cars or anything like that. Lots of pygmies. You'd be very careful with pygmies. Um, one of the take-homes I have from working in the bush in Africa, never, ever drink with a pygmy. <laughs> they look charming. And, and I don't mean to um, cast aspersions. <laughs> but this is just my experience, and not only my experience. They look charming, yeah. but you get them drunk. And they are nasty little people. Are they? They are really nasty. And they're like fearless. It's like little dogs. You know, a little dog goes you and there's no logic to it. You know, logic would say, stay away, little dog. I'm much bigger than you. But they'll go you and you can't hold them back. The pygmies are like that when you get them drunk. So you had a fight with Yeah. I once had a fight with a pygmy and there were lots of me. I was the only European there. And I was sitting there around a fireplace with all of these, uh, uh, you know, uh, Africans and um, and this pygmy comes down this <laughs> this pygmy comes down this little path, right, with a guitar that he'd made. Was it a ukulele? Or? It, well, it looked like a ukulele, but it wasn't. It was it was a guitar, but he'd made it himself, you yeah. know. And it played music. Well, it wasn't music. It made a noise after a fashion. Anyway, he was already drunk, and he was going back into the bush to his family. <laughs> Anyway, he decided when he saw me that he could extort money out of me by playing a tune. So he comes over and plays a tune. And there's something charming about it to start with, you know, but he was nasty and drunk. Drunk and nasty, actually, because he might have been all right when he wasn't drunk. Anyway, at the end of the day, he um, got very belligerent when I just didn't want to pay him money. And these, uh, you know, the Africans that were around me, they knew you don't mess with a drunk pygmy. (laughs) Anyway, in the end, he started to get physically, and they're tough. Yeah, they're, like I'm not. You know me. I'm. You know, I haven't done a day's exercise in my life. Um, and so I, in front of these guys, just he comes over to the fire, and he got really nasty, and he started gesticulating the guitar in my direction. So anyway, I grabbed the guitar out of his hand and smashed it over his head. And it blew into like a thousand pieces. Not his head, the guitar. Yeah, the guitar. And um. And he just, you know, trucked off into the <laughs> trucked off into the bush, and everyone cheered, and we had a great night. Yeah. But I thought, you know, if he comes down with some pygmy friends <laughs> tomorrow night, I'm toast. Oh, that's pretty good. Well, um, what do you think the uh, key attributes for success in the broadcasting industry are? Well, I I would want to say be yourself. Yeah. But there are a lot of people that have been successful without being themselves. Um, but mostly. Mm, are there? I don't know. Um, and a lot of people, if they were themselves, would, would be terribly boring, mm. sadly. Um, 
You know, it's very hard to answer that question because it depends what you're doing. A lot of people are just reading, you know, to one degree or another, they're just reading. And you can't just sit people that work in television in front of cameras and call them stars just because they're sitting in front of the camera. Yeah. You know, they're just people that work in television sitting in front of a camera telling you something. I mean, the question is, you know, are they, are they, I don't like the word real, but are they being real? You know, are they actually telling you a story from themselves? Are they telling you what they think about a thing? Are you growing? Is it theatrical? You know, is it interesting? Is it funny? Or are they just reading something? And I mean, they might not be physically reading it then. They might have read it, you know, in the newsroom and now they've come in and they're just regurgitating it. You know, what does it mean to them? What have they added to it? I think if, if there's one, if I can distill down a few words to answer that question, it would be giving of yourself. Yeah. You know, how often do you, you'll, you'll watch someone on television, listen to someone on the radio, and you really don't know what they think. No. They actually haven't enhanced what they're telling you in any way. Any way. Yeah. What do you think of the woke culture? It's just a transition, isn't it? I mean, we've had there are all kinds of things, the tall poppy thing, you know, don't like people that are, you know, don't like people who've got too much money or that we perceive have got too much money or a better life than us. And, and, it, and now the vibe is the woke thing. Mm. Um, Where do you think it which stops, is, though? Well, it stops. It isn't. It, it, it's anti-freedom of speech. Yeah. And people will jump on that and say, oh, don't go saying that. You know, freedom of speech shouldn't give you a, a license to offend people. Yes, it should. You know, people, I mean, I don't want to live in a country where I'm not offended by anything. Mm. What kind of a what kind of a world would that be? Yeah. I mean, the right to be offended is I would fight for that right. Yeah. Um, the right to be told the truth, the right to hear the views of people whose views are different to mine, mm-hmm. the right to express different views. Um, you know, there are so many people who hunt out offense. Yeah. Um, you can find offense in anything. Oh, of course you can. And people come to things pre-offended. Yeah. You know? Um, so what would you say to someone? Say I'm some super woke person. What what would your argument be? Because say I sit here and go, well, you shouldn't say things like that, and that's not politically correct, and that's rude. Well, then it's probably something you should say. Yeah, you know, and and wokeness is the next version of politically correct, isn't it? Yeah. Um, which is just a way of dampening people down. Mm. You know, I, I think anything that takes away people's individual rights is bad. Now, I mean, the perfect political system is libertarianism. Mm -hmm. Now, because it's perfect and there's nothing perfect in life, it's impossible. It wouldn't work anywhere. But the the fundamental argument with libertarianism is you should be free to do anything you want to at all as long as you don't impinge on the freedom of others. Now, if you think about that, it's absolutely flawless, Mm. but it is very hard to do some things, like, for instance, murder. You can't murder anyone because you've impinged on their freedom to live. Yeah. Right, so if you think about it, it's it's a perfect system to operate your life. It just doesn't work no. um, because it's it's too complex in its simplicity. Um, the woke culture you have to be you can't cancel one thing without canceling many things. Yeah, and canceling people's freedom to be themselves and tell you how they feel. Usually, the sickest cultures are cultures where people are not free to speak their mind. Mm, that's very true, and where the media is controlled. Mm. What um what do you think of the new kind of me- like what media is like today? Obviously, in 
you know, in your heyday, it was very much like breakfast TV and radio was very big. Whereas now, I honestly couldn't tell you the last time I sat down and watched TV. No. And we've got the situation now where there are just, even in, in, in I was going to say legitimate media, uh, in mainstream media, there are so many platforms. There has ne- never been a time in media stroke entertainment where the hunger for content has been so great, the money to pay for it has been so low. So low, yeah. Because you've now spread so many platforms over approximately the same audience. Yeah. You've got to the point now where there are such specialised platforms that even if every single person that loves that content watches it or listens to it, they'll still go broke because they're so specific that there aren't enough people, even if, and they never all will, but even if they do. Um, And so with that comes a dumbing down. Um, One of the things that's dumbed down, which I think is probably a good thing, we used to be very, very prissy about technical quality. Mm -hmm. And this was at a time when it was very expensive to get get great technical quality. Uh, And that became an, uh, an obstacle to communication. Um, You know, we would never take phone calls uh, on air to start with the quality. When I first started out in broadcasting at the BBC, you would never have someone on the phone on air because the quality was so bad. So low, yeah. Um, And you certainly wouldn't have anyone's, you know, amateur footage on television, whereas now that forms the basis. But it's actually become a lazy way out. If you look Mm. at a lot of programs now, you know, it's, it's rather than giving someone a taxi chit and getting them to come into the studio... You'll just get them behind some appallingly shitty background yeah. with nasty quality. And it's a fi- it's now, to start with, allowing this increased communication, but it's now actually starting to impair communication. Because there's nothing like just sitting down with someone. And actually, as you sure. know, doing this. Yeah. You know, just sitting there and you can see them and you can feel them and smell them and hear them. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, because so, well, my, my team were like, you know, they were like, oh, it'd be so much easier if we just get everyone on Zoom. And Yeah, and it would be. I was so anti that. You know, mm. I'm so pro, you know, actually sitting down. Because the, the whole thing's different. You know, it's hard to, I find, to properly engage with people. And, you know, even through my business, like I'm, you know, we let people work from home if they really need to. But we're pretty anti that. Yeah. You know, obviously, circumstantially, if someone needs to or, you know, we're not, you know, that crazy. But, you know, I'm actually all for people being in the office and, because there's so much osmosis, I think, from when you're actually around people. Oh, and, and, and a lot of it is very hard to quantify. Yeah. A lot of it is happening subconsciously, but it's definitely happening. It's definitely there, yeah. yeah. We just pick up on so many things, you know, when people are talking about stuff and you're like, oh, that's really interesting. And ideas. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can when you're just on a screen or on a telephone, it's so easy to keep things to yourself. So easy. And you, I also find productivity so much lower. Mm. You know, I guess when someone else is in the office and – you start slacking off, you know, and they start looking at you like, oh, I should probably get back to it. Whereas at home, it's so easy just to get distracted. Oh, distractions. It's interesting because, you know, the whole open plan thing. So, um, I mean, by the time you were born, open plan was that was the thing. The thing so yeah. everyone was knocking walls down. People are starting to put walls up now. Back again, yeah. Because when a phone rings in an open plan office, oh, everyone so... stops for a minute and looks. Yeah. Is it my phone? No, whose phone is it? I wonder who's phoning that. <laughs> you know, and it's yeah, so they, it seems now, particularly in the United States, but but I think everywhere, people are now gravitating back into closed spaces. Mm. To start with, they put some partitions up and the partitions are turning into walls. Walls, mm. yeah. What, um, you've obviously interviewed many influential people in your life. Who do you think is the most interesting person or memorable? Oh, it's a tricky question. I mean, people are memorable. Well, memorable is an easy question to answer. 
um, because they're the ones you can remember. Yeah. Um, influential is tricky because quite often the ones that you remember are the ones that were influential because they were influential to you, to you. not necessarily across the board influential. Yeah. When I was very, uh, when I was just sort of starting out, um, you won't even know the name Peter Ustinov, but this goes back to the true A-list days of Hollywood, and he was at the at the scrag end of that. Um, he was a intellectual, huge, huge man, sort of Orson Welles-esque kind of character, um, a, a, a writer, a director, an actor, um, and he had a he had come to New Zealand because he at the end of his career promoting his book DME. Um, which is a great read, as I remember it. This is many years ago. And uh, I wanted to get in and interview him. And he was staying at the James Cook Hotel in Wellington on the Terrace, which I assume is still there. Yeah. Um, but that in those days, that was the hotel, the if you were rich. And I was in a very junior capacity, and he was holding a media conference at 9 a.m. Uh, in the hotel, and I had no accreditation to go to it. But I had my little tape recorder, and I'd done lots of research and I mean, he was—he worked with all the greats um, in Hollywood. I mean, like the greatest uh, A-listers, and was one of them himself. Um, and so I thought, how do I get into this? I mean, well, I couldn't get to the media conference. It was taking place in his suite at the oh. James Cook Hotel at nine a.m. in the morning. So I got to the James Cook Hotel at like seven a.m. and I sat in reception and I watched the lifts. And I don't know if it was a lift that just went to the... No, it wasn't a lift that just went, but I knew obviously he'd be on the top floor and I'd already wrecked the place on the phone the day before to ask, and they wouldn't tell me who was staying in what room, but they had two suites, uh, you know, presidential suites. Anyway, I get there at 7 o'clock in the morning, I watch the lift, and this guy comes out with this grand trolley, you know, this worker with his, you know, food covered up with white napkins and everything like that. So I say, oh, I'll grab the door for you. So I helped him get the trolley into the lift and just stayed in the lift. So it goes up to the top floor. Anyway, cut a long story short, comes out on this top floor and I thought it's got to be, it's got to be, a- you know, it's got to be Peter's breakfast. Um, Do you try it? He knock, Well, he knocks <laughs> on the door, right? And this woman comes to the door and... Um, I can't remember if she said, someone said Ustinov, right? Might have been the guy, Mr. Ustinov's breakfast, or, or she said, oh, Mr. Ustinov, be out in a minute, can you just bring it in? And I said, oh, let me get that. And I looked like I was working for the hotel. You know, so, and I think the guy thought that I was, the hotel guy thought I was working for, for Mr. Ustinov, oh. and the woman thought I was working for the hotel. Yeah. Uh, you know, and we'd both come up to deliver the breakfast. So I said, I'll get that door. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I said, oh, I'll get the trolley, that's all right. So that guy leaves. I'm then there with the trolley. She said, oh, can you put it over here? So I take it into the room, huge palatial room, take it into the room, and I, would you like me to set it out? Yes. I had no idea what was under the buckets, you know. Um, and so I set it on this table, right, and I start, was running out of things to, to do. And she said, that's fine, that's fine. And then this booming voice from the other room, what's going on? Uh, and she said, oh, it's all right, Mr. Yusnoff, your breakfast's here. And he appears, this great big old man with a towel wrapped around his waist, oh. appears. He says, oh, thank you. And I said, look, I've got to be honest, Mr. Yusnoff. Um, I'm actually a journalist and I couldn't get into the nine o'clock. I'm even talking like I was talking <laughs> then, you know, in a cheap young little voice. Yeah. Um, I couldn't get into the nine o'clock press conference, but I've always wanted to meet you and I really love to, 
I'd really love to interview. And there was this long pause, and he was an ogre of a man, uh, you know, physically an yeah, ogre yeah. of a man. And he said, is there enough food there for two? And I said, I'm not very hungry. He said, well, you can't eat breakfast with me then. I said, oh, well, let's have a look. And I, anyway, in the end, we sat there, and I got him to tell a story which I, uh, which I had researched about a meeting with um, – John Huston, the director on the set of African Queen. These are, I mean, you're glazing over. Yeah, I've no None idea of these what, things nah. make, you know, John Huston, African <laughs> Queen, Peter Ustinov. These are huge, huge you know. Um, anyway, he started to tell the story and he did all the voices mm-hmm. of the story. And um, it was a trick that he had played on John Huston on the set of African Queen. Uh, Humphrey Bogart It was, was the star of the movie and he claimed that, does that name ring a bell? No. Jesus <laughs> <laughs> I think I've heard of Humphrey Bogart. Married to Lauren Bacall. Does that name ring a bell? No, of course it doesn't. <laughs> anyway, he started to tell the story to me yeah. sitting there as I was nibbling away at some of the bacon. And were you recording? And yeah, and I was yeah. recording on my little tape recorder. And um, the story went on and on and on. He did all the voices mm-hmm. of the people in the, ho- the hospital and the doctor and the specialist. Wow. And, um, and the media conference, started, people came in. And they were setting their cameras up and recording this amazing Peter Yusnov sitting, sitting there doing these voices. Yeah. Um, anyway, hugely influential to me. Wow. And where'd you, um, where'd the story and, you know, go? It would have been easy just not to get that mm. on national radio. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, which in those days was called the national program. The national. Um, did but, you ever forget to tape something? Yeah. And sometimes I once uh, did a story which I won a, a, a Broadcasting Peace Award for. Uh, on um, the uh, uh, Irish conflict with uh, Paisley, Ian Paisley, oh, right, yeah. the Reverend Ian Paisley, and his son, who is called Ian Paisley. And I was interviewing them both. Ian Paisley, huge guy. I mean, just a monster, monster of a man. Yeah. Um, and his son. And I just had the level set quite low. Mm. And, yeah. And, you, and you're doing the interview and you see the VU meter, you know, is barely registering. Oh, no. And you're halfway through and you think, I can't say to these people, can we do it again? Because yeah. you're in a situation where you just can't. You can't yeah. It was an interesting thing where one of the, I remember one of the questions I asked, you know, during the conflict, which is still going on, one of the longest running conflicts in the history of the world now, uh, next to uh, the war in Sudan, southern Sudan, um, uh, the Irish conflict. Anyway, the, the, I, I said to his son, so the father's standing there, and I say to the son, um, you know, were you ever terrified? Did you ever feel your father had let you down as a father, not as the leader of this, you know, ideological conflict, which has been going for decades? And Is this the IRA conflict? Yeah, yeah. Ah, right. And he said, we were upstairs in the house, and I was in bed, and I'd woken up because of the chanting outside with people with torches and throwing rocks at the house and everything like that. And he said the door burst open and dad was there and he was standing next to him when I was recording this. And I was asking him the questions too, that, you know, Reverend Ian Paisley, he said, um, and dad leant down and he said, we might die tonight, but if we do, you can die knowing you were on the right side of this conflict. And he said he just touched my head and then went downstairs and opened the door and went out and read these rioters, the riot act. And obviously they weren't killed. 
Wow, that's heavy. Yeah, but I mean, it was re- and and he said that, and I looked at his father, and there was a huge amount of compassion in the father because I don't know that it was a story that he'd ever told his ever father. Told, yeah, wow. That um that conflict's actually how my family ended up in New Zealand. Really? Yeah. So my um my grand my grandma on my mum's side and my granddad were um on other sides of the war. Yeah. So I think my granddad was Catholic and my grandma was Protestant, and then they met. And then they both got kicked out of their village, effectively. For associating with each other. Yeah. And then they um, they ended up moving to New Zealand. And so wow. That's, yeah, that's how. And still the conflict goes on. I know, crazy. Nowhere near as bad now as it has been. But, you know, conflicts often do that. They ebb and yeah, they flow. Yeah, ebb and flow. You know what they call those walls? Peace walls. Oh. Because they were walls put up to try and keep peace. But actually the walls are war walls, really, because they're just constant ugly reminders that on the other side of that wall there are people you hate. Yeah, that's that's actually very true. What what do you think makes a good leader in politics? I think probably similar to what makes a good broadcaster. You know, I mean, you you have to believe what you're saying. You have to be there for the right reasons. And you have to know what the reasons are. Like, why are you there? Why are you doing this? How would you navigate it in America then? Because... You know, you've obviously got these massive lobby groups. Like, say you're the Republican candidate and you weren't really that into guns. You know, there's no way you can be the Republican no. candidate. You know, so how... Well, there is, but you have to, like we were saying earlier, you know, you have to lie a bit. Yeah. Um, and if you're there for what you perceive to be the right reasons, America is a very big ship to turn, turn around. Yeah, massive. You know? Yeah. And you can't expect as one leader to be able to turn it back on itself. No. And you probably don't want to completely turn it back on itself. No. So I think you bite things off. You know if you if you're the president of the United States, you're the president of the United States for a maximum of 8 years. There's one exception to that, but we won't go into that. Um, for the maximum of eight years. So what can you achieve in those eight years to make America a better country? This is what every leader needs to look at. Yeah. Um, what can you achieve to make it a better country? Well, the first thing you have to know, you have to know what you really believe would make it a better country. Yeah. And that comes back to what I said. You've got to know why you're there. You've got to be able to communicate your passion for why you're there to people. What do you think the issues facing New Zealand at the moment are? Oh, there's just, there are so many. Yeah. We are still suffering from the fact that we're a very young country. Yeah. You know, we're still, I hate that term, trying to find our way in the world. We're just trying to find our way domestically, you know, and we're trying to ward off um, major problems of separatism and things like that, which have come to New Zealand very early on. Mm-hmm. You know, we haven't quite got to got to grips with with where we sit and how things operate, and and we haven't quite got things functioning just because we're such a young country and we're being presented with these major problems, which you can no longer solve um, by shooting people because it's just not the way you do it. Whereas a lot of countries actually <laughs> they faced these problems when that is how you handled it. Yeah. Um, but prioritising, by looking after people, by – when I say looking after people, by looking after people in a way that they can look after themselves into the future. Yeah. Um, by driving the country where you can bring as many people as possible along with you. But at the same time recognising you can never bring everybody along. No. But if you're going to make any changes, you've got to be pre- prepared to do things that people don't like. And there are a lot of leaders now who just don't want to, they don't want to face the prospect that someone won't like what they're saying or doing. Yeah. And when you're operating in the centre ground, I can sort of understand that. But um, 
it's very hard to get things done if you're not prepared to alienate a few people. So if you were Prime Minister tomorrow, what would you change first? What would I change if I was Prime Minister? I mean, I think I would stop I would stop spending money and wasting time on bureaucratic changes which don't address immediate problems. Like, you know, we talk about in this country, how is it acceptable that we have child poverty and crimes against children to the level that we have? How is that possible Mm. in this country? Because whichever way you cut this country, it's paradise. You know, you look at countries who look after their children to a greater extent than we do, and they're shitholes, some of them. Yeah. But they've got a vibe which which champions children, champions children's rights um, over and above parents' rights. So, so I think those are the sort of things that I would immediately focus my attention on. And health, you know. I mean, let's look, look, look go back to um, the way we handled COVID. You know, the Labour government had an extraordinary opportunity when they could borrow tens of billions of dollars without anyone questioning the borrowing because it was the right thing to do. No other government in the history of this country has ever been able to go out and borrow just crazy amounts of money. Mm. No one would question it. No. What we questioned was what they chose to spend it on. Mm. They had an opportunity to borrow $50 billion, $60 billion and invest it in the future so that we could come out of COVID in a better shape than we went into it. Yeah. They didn't do that. No. How would you motivate all these people now that aren't wanting to work post-COVID? Bloody hard, eh? Because, I mean, some of those people come from families that that, uh, have have been demotivated over multiple generations. Generations, Um, How do you get people back? Well, you have to, for a start, you have to show them that there is a benefit, that they can benefit by working harder. You have to allow people to benefit. You know, pretty similar to the doll. Yes, it is. Yeah. Mm. No, it is. I mean, there are a lot of things in a socialist society which take away people's drive and enthusiasm for personal responsibility. Totally. No, I I mean, I think the hard thing with it, I mean, I personally am like a very motivated person. And I found after the second big lockdown, I was really struggling. Mm. Like it was like the first time in my life I put on weight. You know, I was pretty like, oh, I can't bother going to the gym. And I'm never like that. I'm Because well, always... a lot of options have been taken away. That comes back to personal motivation. Yeah. Like a lot of the things that you wanted to do, like travel easily, you know, like like visit people, all of those things have been taken away from you. So when you take away people's opportunities to be better than they are or do better things than they're doing, when you take those opportunities away, this the struggle is almost not worth it. No. So people are demotivated. And that is one of the problems with socialism. Yep. You know, it is a huge demotivator. So what are your thoughts on Adern's resignation? Um, I, I'm sure she chose to res- resign because it was better for her and better for the party. Because if there's one thing I know about her, she cares desperately about her political beliefs, the furtherance of them, the Labour Party, um, socialism, I mean, she cares passionately about that. And you have to admire you have to admire that. Totally. You know, the one thing that I have never been is a one-eyed political supporter. Yeah. You have to take your hat off to people who are passionate about politics because the reason they're passionate about politics is they have a vision for how they want to turn the ship. Yeah. And that their vision is always based on people having a better life if the ship turns that way. Mm. And then people who are on the other side of politics, One they also have exactly the same vision of people leading a better life. It's just they believe the ship needs to turn in a different direction. Yeah. 
Totally. That was ship, not shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, They believe that the, the ship needs to turn in a different direction to achieve the same thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one wants to live. I can't imagine that anyone wants to live in a society that's full of people who, who can't afford to live, who can't afford to feed themselves or their children, uh, a society where there are homeless people down all the streets. So, so we accept that we're, none of us want to live in that country. No. So how do we move to a country where that doesn't happen? And what do you think would be the best steps to sort, you know, these ram raids and, you know, the kind of increased crime? Well, you just have to come down on people like a ton of bricks. Yeah. You know, it's just, just, it's the same way, though. It's saying they need education doesn't stop one ram raid. No. Because that that bus has left the station, you know. You can't start educating people now. I mean, that can be a component to a strong fist. You know, to coming down on people like a ton of bricks. And it should be. You know, there's no point locking people up and throwing away the key because, you know, one day those people are going to be out on the street. Yeah. So you've got to improve their lot. Um, and, yes, education is so vitally important. But at the end of the day, protecting people who are behaving uh, in a satisfactory manner is more important today. Yeah. Protecting people today is more important because what you're doing then – Yes, you're showing people that that kind of behaviour won't be tolerated by society, but you're also showing a wider group of people that actually our lives can be better mm-hmm. without that kind of behaviour, totally. that your life can be better, it can be bigger and, and more adventurous, that you can be broader of vision. Yeah. We just feel so sorry for these business owners. You know, and I don't know, it's, it's pretty tough, I reckon, every morning, you know, we work in the city and just every day there's, you know, different glass buildings that are... You know, been smacked into and it. because that is demotivating, yeah. not just for the business owners for who think, what is the point coming in here and feeling terrified yeah. just to sell a couple of packets of cigarettes and, a, and, a, and some chewing gum, totally. you know, but it's demotivating for the people that walk past, you know, who walk down streets that are yeah. broken up and, you know, and there's that, that threat subconsciously, that threat is always there. Yeah. This is not the society it once was. No. And a society won't stay the same unless you continually evolve and do different things, yeah. unless you have the right... comes back to your question about leaders. You know, why are they there? What do they want to achieve? And what reasonably... What steps have they got in their mind to do it? You know, when you change your cabinet, why are you changing the cabinet? You know, in what way will that change affect the changes you want to make to make New Zealand better? Yeah. You said that you thought she may have stepped down because it could have furthered the party. Do you not think her staying in was the better call? No. Why is that? No. Uh, Because people were over her leadership, and she would have known that. She was, I'm sure, I'm not sure, I suspect strongly she was over leading the country. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a hard job, as you know. In what way do you mean by that? I think the pressures... Yep. I think the fact that things oh, never go... Oh, like sick of leading. Sick, sick, oh. of, sick of the job yeah, to a yeah. degree. Yep. But still, you know, I'm sure vitally passionate yep. about the aims that she had. So what's the best way of achieving them? Is the best way of achieving them to stay here or to create what was an extraordinarily smooth transition? Hmm. I mean, that just never happens. No. That was very well calculated totally. and, and positioned, manoeuvred. Um, and... As we can see from the from the results now, from opinion polls, um, it has at least temporarily improved improved their chances. And I think flip side of that also for her own family life, I think yep. she had contributed a lot and has totally. maybe decided that her contribute her contribution now can be more to family and in a different a different arena. Do you think there's a bad? I was talking to Dad about this actually. Do you think it's 
you know, obviously, you know, my dad, John Key, and, you know, Jacinda's resignations were at different times for different reasons. You know, it's, it's actually, it's tough to compare them. There were, simili- there were similarities. Similarities, so. yeah. Both but, of them made their own call. Totally. Maybe for different reasons. But in a world where people very often do not, do not get the yeah. opportunity to make that call, both of them did. Yeah, and that's definitely something I respect out of Jacinda for doing that. Yep. But what do you I, – I actually questioned Dad on this. Do you think he's almost created a bad precedent, you know, that – because, you know, there is an argument, say, you know, when Bill became prime minister and Chris, you know, is now the prime minister. You know, massive respect to these guys. It's nothing to do with that. But do you think, you know, there is that element of you haven't voted for these people – do you think it's a bad precedent that the person that you've elected, that the country democratically has chosen, you know, that they're stepping down and someone else? Is yes, going? I do. Do you think? Yeah. yeah, I do. Now, that doesn't mean that I think they should stay there until they're thrown out yeah. just because there's no other way out. Totally. But in essence, democracy dictates that there is no other way out. Yeah. That you have to lose. Be- because, and, and, and your dad said this, um, and I'm sure it was the same for Jacinda, you know, he couldn't honestly have fought another campaign and faced the question, are you here for another three years? And honestly said yes, right? But actually, that's what he said two and a half years ago. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So he he was actually in the process of doing what he didn't want to be in the position of doing if he won another election. Yeah. And 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 that's there's no other way out. No. You know, you can't go to the polls saying, well, I'm I'm going to represent the country. This is what I want to achieve, but I I can't give it 3 more years. You yeah. just can't do that. No, it's not do doable. That. No. So if if you're going to choose your time, if you're going to manage your way out as he did, um and was almost the first person to do it in this country. Yeah. Um th- and that is the way a winner steps off the stage. Oh, totally. But if you're going to do that, then you are actually breaking a bit of a pledge. And that, that that was actually my exact argument to Dad when I was talking, you know, because we were together when we found the news out about Jacinda. And I said the exact same thing. I was like, I actually think it's super honourable what both of you did. Mm. You know, I actually have mad respect. You know, I obviously saw the physical and stress demands, you know, that Dad went through. And, you know, you can physically see that, you know, Jacinda's been tired and stressed and... You know, I know firsthand how hard the job is. So, you know, I do have massive respect for that. But it was, yeah, just interesting. I thought, you know, maybe what it creates long term because you don't you don't want it where every person that becomes elected. No, you don't. No, you don't. Because it, at, at which point do people decide to get, oh, I've done six months. Yeah. You know, I've done six months. Time for someone else to have a go. Actually, that sounds very much like the way the Greens would operate. <laughs> <laughs> but thank God they'll never have the opportunity to oh, do it. Yeah. Um, I... Um, it's it's interesting because you can logically say, in your father's case, you know, I'm going to step down six months before the election or however long before. It was about six months. Yeah. You know, and I'm going to manage what I believe is the best way for the future of New Zealand. I'm going to manage that exit this way. Yeah. That's better than, than winning the election and stepping down six months six after months the election. Later. Yeah, you know? totally. So if you're going to do that, if you're going to take that kind of, to a degree, moral high ground, if you're going to make that kind of decision, that's the most honourable way of making it. Totally. And in New Zealand... I actually think three years is such a waste of time because if you think about it, the first year, you know, say you're the new incumbent government, the first year, you know, you're basically just settling in, you're kind of understanding. You've got a year of doing something yeah, if you're lucky. Yeah, second year you can actually do something, third year you're campaigning. Yeah. You know, so... 100%. So what's the right amount of time? Because I've thought a lot about this. I I think the right term is five years, but mm. the problem with five years 
is if you get the wrong person in, five years time. is a long time. Totally. So I suppose what you say then is is four, four. years. I mean, I would definitely support a four-year campaign. Same. You get two terms, eight years. Yeah. Um, three terms, 12. It's pretty long. It's pretty long. Well, it's crazy to think just how much <laughs> the world's like changed. You know, from, you know, even if you look now from 2011, 2023, it's crazy. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the the American idea is has merit where you say you've got a maximum of two terms. Now, yeah. most presidents, as we know, will get two terms. Um, the great thing about that is that you know going towards the end of your second term, you're never going to be president again. No. In the last, say, even the last three years, you know, once you've settled down into your second term of presidency, certainly in the last two, you can actually do as much as you can possibly do without having to think about the polls. re-election, yeah. without having to think about the totally. polls. The flip side of that is if you get an absolute twat in, mm. which is possible, um, they could be even more dangerous those last few years. Yeah. I think the problem with America as well is, you know, even Dad, he's – center right in New Zealand but if you look at him globally he's actually pretty center if not no 100% like his policies in the United States no in the United States he would be an absolute centrist politician yeah and so what I think with New Zealand the good thing is you know obviously every government changes a few things but problem with America is you know you get Obama in and he fixes you know creates Obamacare and all this and then Trump comes in and just gets rid of all of it you know and yeah. It's almost like yeah. they just you do destroy. have. I mean, with the Senate, you do have checks and balances in place. Yeah. So it's not just carte blanche. They don't. They can't just go in, as you know, and and just, just change everything. Yeah. Um, and establish new ways of doing things. And what you hope is that every change is a slight improvement. Improvement. Yeah. Um, and in some in some things that has been the case. Mm. I mean, I think Obamacare is actually better now after a term of Trump and then back in with Biden than it was when Obama left. Yeah. Um, so you would hope that they improve, but unfortunately, the nature of adversarial politics is that you do spend a lot of your time and a lot of your energy to one degree fighting the opposition. Fighting the opposition, yeah. yeah. Now, I think that is the, that's the one thing I do really love about New Zealand, you know, that we do have social welfare and, you know, obviously there are still homeless people, but, you know, everyone can actually get a house if they're looking for it. And, you know, it's pretty scary. We were in LA a couple of months ago and, you know, there's tent cities everywhere, and it's getting much, much worse. Yeah, over there. it's scary. Much, much worse. Even in Palm Springs, where I live, it's—I mean, it's shocking. Yeah. You know, the number of homeless people that 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 create because for a long time homeless people just lived in corridors, mm. and you know, maybe put a few cardboard boxes in a corner. But now, as you say, they are creating tent cities, cities yeah. and they're they're cordoning off entire sections of suburbs. Suburbs, yeah, that's scary, and they're very unhinged over there. You know, here you don't often see, you know, the people like talking to themselves or whereas there they're like screaming and Yeah. Yeah, it's definitely eye opening, I guess. In um from from my window, uh I, I live actually right on a major intersection in Palm Springs. And obviously Palm Springs is a small place, but yeah. it's still a major intersection. Um and there's a seven eleven immediately diagonally opposite my house. And quite quite often I have the curtains open. Uh, upstairs at night and I'll wake and it'll be like, you know, the 4th of July fireworks because it's, it's you know, cop cars, lights, oh, so it's blue, red, blue, red. <laughs> and and I'll look out the window and, you know, in the because I don't live there permanently, uh, I don't live there all the time, obviously, a few months of the year, um, the number of people I've seen spread eagled on the road with the police, 
you know, pointing guns at them in the short time, you know, and this is a nice area. Yeah. And yet crime is just one 7-Eleven away. And serious gun crime. Proper, yeah. Yeah, pro- proper crime. Well, we um we were in Hawaii for Christmas just with my family. And um we had dinner with a guy that dad works with in Silicon Valley. And they, they actually live in Dallas, Fort Worth. And how nuts is this? So their their daughter is 16 and their son is 10. And they have to wear a backpack that's fully see-through. And they get metal detected and patted down yeah. every day for school. Yeah. I mean, like... God, you couldn't even fathom that in New Zealand. But isn't, imagine knowing your kid's going to school and there's a genuine chance yeah. that some crazy gunman comes in. Which and, you know. I mean, the number yeah. of the number of multiple killings over there is extraordinary. Well, I think it's more than one a day. Yeah. I think yeah. mass shootings and defined as like Multiple three killings, yeah. That's yeah. right. Um, I had a, a, a guy come round uh, to my place when um, we were sitting on the, on the deck in front of my house. Um, and he was a retired police officer. Anyway, he, he was sitting there with his wife, uh, and I was just having a chat. We are just having a drink. And um, he was on holiday in Palm Springs. Uh, anyway, we were just having a drink, and we were talking about the gun lobby, and I, I was saying how so often they're their own worst enemy and, mm. you know, the lunacy that they talk about, the you know, the um, Constitution, their right to bear arms. And, and there's, there's so much in that argument that is, that is yeah. flawed. Um, we were talking about that. Um, and he said, you know, the cat's out of the bag. He said, if you if you take people's right to bear arms away from them, he said, it will be a bloodbath. And I said, well, it's a bloodbath now. He said, I would not. He said, I, I said, obviously, you've got a you've got a gun. He said, yeah. He said, I always carry a gun. I said, so is it at home? And he said, what's the point having it at home? I'm on holiday. I said, so you brought it on holiday with you. Is it in your truck? He said, what's, ha- what's the point having it in my truck? What was on him? And I said, well, you've... Have you left it in your hotel? And he unrolled the towel that was sitting next to him. And there was a Glock in the towel. And he said, he said, do you know what that gun, that gun does? He said, that gun guarantees that there won't be a mass shooting around your house. He said, if a gun goes off, if someone's killed, I will kill whoever shot them. So he said, they'll only shoot one person. And then he said... And obviously, he was a member of the gun lobby. I discovered, and he was uh, ex-policeman, which you'd like to think meant that he was on Trained the right probably. side. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You'd like to think, um, but yeah, his his argument was if every teacher was trained in in with firearms and had a gun on them, then there would no no longer be mass shootings in schools. There would be shootings, but not mass, but shoot. not mass shootings. I just, my worry with it though, we were talking about this at jujitsu the other night is you understand when you start training, you know, I've been doing it a few years now and you know, if I roll with a black belt, I just get the crap beaten out of me still, you know, it's not even close. Right. And we always sit there and wonder like, oh, imagine if a black belt went to the dark side, you know, like turn, you know, just went around mugging people because they would just murder everyone, you know, they'd train killers basically at that point. And I think that's the worry. If you train all these people... And they use, can get through metal detectors. Yeah, yeah, their, their hands are the, are the weapons. But I think that's the scary thing is, you know, obviously, yeah, there's logic in what they're saying. But then if you train everyone to own and operate a gun, all it takes is one person mm. to have, you know, bad day at work or, you know, a drug trip. Oh, or, absolutely. You know, and then you've got some trained person with a gun. And you've got guns in every classroom straight yeah, away. straight Automatically, away. everyone knows there's a gun in every classroom. We always see, we're, we're in America a couple of years ago and... The um the chick that was like the main person for the NRA, I think, 
I'm probably going to get all this, the names. No, but that was what, what, to, to make it a more palatable organisation, they they had a, a female front up. Oh, did they? Yeah, and didn't her toddler grab her gun and she shot yeah. yeah, and she shot her. And you sit there and you like you want to feel like sympathy. Obviously, you know, it's terrible she got shot. But at the same time, and, it knocks the argument. Yeah, you're like, well, is that not exactly the reason why, yeah. you know? But, you know, you do have that, you do have that counter-argument. And, and, I mean, I think the easiest thing they could do immediately is ban all automatic and semi-automatic weapons. They could easily, easily ban those. It doesn't in any way uh, hinder the constitutional rights of Americans to bear arms no. to, in, in self-defense. But if you look at the number of mass shootings they have that only involve pistols, it's it's like less than 1% yeah. of mass shootings that only involve pistols. Yeah, well, you can go, we were in Target the other day. And like Costco, and you can buy like a full noise, yeah. like AK. Yeah. It's like, it's mad. You can go to, um, you know, gun shows. I mean, that's the, they're the loosest of the lot. I mean, as a tourist, you can turn up to a gun show in Vegas or something like that, and you can go away with an arsenal. It's nuts, right? Like boats, like I like boating, and, um, you know, you, you travel around the world on your boat. Uh, the the thing is, you go into San Diego Harbor or something, they reckon that, that in the sea, out, out just outside of San Diego, there's just so many weapons. Oh. Because on boats like mine, you carry, you have a gun locker. Yeah. Um, for I, pirates. I don't have any fire. Yeah, for pirates and that. Yeah. Um, and the paperwork getting into the States to bring weapons in is so extraordinarily complex well, so just that you just dump them in the water. And then as soon as you get there, you go into a shop and buy new guns. That's nuts. Because the paperwork to buy a gun is. That's crazy. I wonder if there's some like. Mafia somewhere that sends divers out there and just has the I think probably once the guns hit the bottom of the sea, yeah, it can't stay there very long before nah. it's buggered. How is the boat? Good, good. Okay. It's waiting to leave the country. Uh, luckily, um, uh, customs have allowed it. Would it be customs? Yeah, customs, not immigration. Um, they've given me extensions on the boat because oh, nice. of COVID, so it's been able to stay here because um, it was only supposed to be here for a year, but it's now been here for about three years. But it will be out in June. And was it named after your mother, right? Yeah, Olive. Olive, yeah. I was. She died when I was building it or oh, having right. it built. Having it built. Um, these are not boat builders' hands. Um, <laughs> very and, soft. Um, and they're very soft. Yeah. Oh, thank you for noticing, Max. Um, yeah. So I so I changed the name. Um, yeah. So she goes around the world yeah, with me on cool. the boat when it's going around the world. Yeah. At the moment, my wife and I just go out and enjoy the Howraki Golf. Yeah, and the lovely rain and winds of Auckland. Oh, what is it about this weather? Oh, it's been terrible. Seriously, I, know. I hope there's no one there's no one that listens to this that's been to Corfu because that'd be a better place to live. <laughs> uh, and how's the gin going? Good, good. Um, the so Henry, it's it. going well. I'll tell you what the problem is with the gin, and it's not just a problem for the Henry. Um, bottles. Oh. Uh, I don't know the extent to which this is a COVID problem, but glass, globally there's a glass shortage, oh. and there are a lot of major bottling companies, much bigger than my gin company, I mean phenomenally big, um, that have now run out of the glass that they've been using for decades. Oh. Um, so it's it's hampered my production of a couple of a uh, couple of other gins and vodkas that I'm bringing out in the range. Yeah. So what do you? So you've got the watermelon gin, watermelon gin, and London style. Oh nice. Um, and they are beautiful New Zealand gins. I yeah. mean, they they. I've uh, tried the watermelon one. Do you like it's it? So good. I I actually hate gin. Well, right. not hate it, but no, no, I can understand. I always it's, cry it's when a certain I drink. drink. Yeah. It's really weird. It like, yeah. makes me very emotional. They reckon it's um 
I shouldn't say this. They reckon it's a depressive drink. Yeah. You know, if you're prone to depression, yeah. you know, one gin's okay, but you wouldn't be wanting to drink a second. No. Um, but no, it's it's beautiful alcohol. It's really, well, you, I don't know if you've tried it neat. Just Yeah, just I just that. had a little, yeah. But it's so smooth, yeah, which good. often you don't get with you don't gin. Get, no. Yeah. Awesome. And how do you, what's the process of like making a gin? Because it's more like distillation. Because it's all chemically made gin, isn't it? Well, the great thing about, because I used to, um, within Vivo, used to make uh, red wine. Yeah. Um, a Pinot Noir, which yeah. was beautiful. But that is more of an art than a science. Yeah. Gin involves art, but the, the most significant part of the art in gin is the blending of the botanicals. And yeah. I use all natural botanicals sourced mostly from New Zealand, but some have had to come from around the world. Um, and what's a botanical? So the botanicals essentially are the flavourings. Oh, right. Okay. So, so the Henry gin is all natural, um, but you need the best quality distillation process. Mine's triple distilled, best quality alcohol. alcohol uh, and you can cut, as many people do, a lot of corners. Yeah. Um, and it's just not as good, not as rich, not as, as rich. smooth. Yeah. Um, how many, can you say how many bottles you kind of make a year or? Well, it's hard at the moment because it, like, I can't get oh, bottles. You can't get bottles. Yeah. yeah. So, so we've actually had to stop taking on new um, commercial customers. Yeah. Um, so that we can continue to guarantee supply of the existing ones we've got. Do you think you'll make like RTDs and stuff? Or? No. No. Just no. keep. Spreading. You've got to be very careful that your cost of distribution doesn't guarantee you poverty. Mm. The cost of like it, like a lot of people will you know you go into a supermarket and you think oh god all those drinks up there they must be doing well but yeah. the cost of being on that shelf in a supermarket and every other sh- supermarket shelf it's is expensive. phenomenal and a lot of those companies particularly the newer ones that have huge distribution are doing it to build the brand, brand. and they hope that they're going to make their money out of selling the brand at some point it's yeah. a capital gain to a degree um, but if you're doing it to I mean, I'm doing it because I just – the challenge for me was to make a really beautiful gin that is high quality. And do you work with, like, a food scientist? Or? I've got – yeah, yeah. Awesome. Not a food scientist, but I've got – People. Uh, like. People, experts, yeah. Yeah, and so do you have your kind of compound all set now? Yeah, and a lot of, a lot of it is um, – yeah, and that comes back to the wine thing. Once you have a supply of the botanicals that you've – crafted artistically crafted and you've got your supplies of the best quality distillation process and ingredients um you can replicate that anywhere limitlessly which you cannot do with wine because obviously every season the grapes are going to be slightly different the blend is going to be slightly different so with botanic so do you sorry so to actually make gin so how many botanicals do you need to, like, make a bottle? Oh. Or do you make, like, a giant drum it, of it? It depends. Yeah, yeah. You you, yeah. you you make it in vats. Yeah. Um, and then it's distilled. Um, and what's distilling? Is that where they... Well, in a, simple, in a simple way, distilling is boiling up water yeah. and then taking the steam huh? and then... Turning and then that becomes water. Yeah. So you've distilled out all. So it's pure. It's pure, much yeah, purer. Yeah. But then you do it again yeah, three and times. again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it becomes as pure as you can possibly make it. And, become, and you're not going to get alcohol. It, it can never be a hundred percent pure. No, no, never. But um, my gin is above ninety-seven percent pure, which wow. is extraordinary. Yeah. And where can where can people buy it that are listening to this? Online is probably big at Glengarry's um, yeah. online uh, whiskey and more. If if you go to um, the Instagram site, the Henry Spirit, yep. um, there's there's um, yeah links 
on there. Sweet. So I that- can't sell it because I've got no liquor license. You oh. don't need a liquor license to make gin. You only need, or to make alcohol, you don't need a liquor license, but you it. need one to sell it. Interesting. I guess that kind of makes sense because you can do like yeah. home brews and yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Interesting. And so, are you going to take that kind of globally, or is it just like in New Zealand? Um, yeah, I mean, we're at the we're at the door yeah. of New Zealand now and duty free yeah. at the Loop duty oh, cool. free at yeah, Auckland yeah. Airport. So we've we've got we've made it to the exit. Yeah. Um, one of the, the issues. Uh, going overseas is one you need phenomenal quantity to make it worthwhile and the other one is different countries have different regulations so you find you're now sticking extra stickers on labels to cover up regulations that are new zealand regulations to you know yeah um but but i'm sort of looking at that but at the moment i can't take that any further because of you know production problems yeah i feel like gin's a cool one though like Everyone in the States kind of does like tequila or vodka. Or... Tequila's huge. Yeah, it's so... in, in some parts, obviously in some states it's not, but certainly around California. Oh, and, yeah. And, oh, God, tequila. Like it's all of a sudden become phenomenally yeah. big. And when it, if the closer you are to Mexico, the more tequila you have to yeah. drink. I used to hate tequila, but then we... I think I still do. Yeah, I, I've started liking it, to be honest. I don't have drink... You? I drink very rarely these days, but tequila's probably... It's like gin and vodka. It's probably like any any spirit. You know, you can definitely tell if you're drinking a bad quality tequila. Yeah, oh, I mean, yeah. they are almost impossible to get Lope down. Pepe Lopez. <laughs> Sweet. Well, I don't know why I turned into an Italian man <laughs> for a moment. I can't do Mexican. No. Sweet. Well, Paul, thank you so much for coming on. Brilliant, Max. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. And um, guys, make sure you check out. So, what is it? The Paul, the Henry the Spirit. Henry Spirit on Instagram. Yeah. Sweet. We'll check that out. And um. Yeah, thank you, Paul. You've officially been keyed up. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Max. Thank you. Thank you. Great to see you again. Cheers, guys. See you next week.